Hello, and welcome to today's George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing, presented by our colleagues around the country in association with the Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University School of Law and Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic um, and to answer your questions about key legal development during this crisis. I'm Leo Boletsky, Professor of Law and Health Sciences at Northeastern University School of Law, and joining me today is Margot Lindauer, who is Associate Clinical Professor and Director of the Domestic Violence Institute at Northeastern University. Welcome, Margot. Thank you for having me. We'll be focusing today on a very important critical issue um, that's in some ways received too little attention during this crisis, which is domestic violence. So if you wouldn't mind just setting the stage for us as far as where were we in the legal and policy developments before the pandemic hit? Sure. Thank you for the question. So where I'd like to start is before the pandemic. And before the pandemic, what we know and what we knew is that intimate partner violence, both domestic violence and sexual assault, is wildly underreported. And we also know the data is is alarming that the data is anywhere between one in three and one in four individuals um, will and have been impacted by intimate partner violence within the course of their life. And we know that the, the data of reporting is much fewer than that in the best of time. Fast forward to the pandemic, and we're seeing the data kind of move all over the map. So some hotlines have experienced an increase in calls, but what we've seen in the provider community is something we could have hypothesized would happen is a drastic drastic decrease in folks reaching out for help. And that's because of a variety of reasons. So one, there's inconsistent information about what is in fact open, right? So a lot of people don't know that courts are open. A lot of people don't know or are scared to go to the police. And frankly, a lot of people can't leave their homes because they're in quarantine. And many of those individuals are in quarantine with their abusers. So in a non-pandemic world, perhaps um, an individual could leave and go for a walk and make a call uh, looking for help that no longer is an option. Also, with so many people being laid off from work or losing their jobs, people are cohabitating together with their abusers and unemployed, which we also know increases the stress in an already stressful situation, which exacerbates violence. The other, I think, really important thing to keep in mind when you're talking about a population who's impacted by violence is that most people, when they do reach out for help, are not reaching out in ways that we would necessarily assume. So most individuals who are impacted by intimate partner violence are not necessarily calling hotlines or going to the police. They might be going to their healthcare provider, their primary care physician. If they're already involved in other systems, maybe a social worker. And all of those help-seeking behaviors have changed within the pandemic. So kind of in summation, we know that violence is increasing, um, though what we're seeing in terms of actual interventions and reported acts of violence have decreased. Right, absolutely. And, And I've heard it said, you know, safer at home is impossible if you're not safe where you are. And so in the context of this rising prevalence of intimate partner violence, what have the legal and the policy responses been to this to this problem, if, if any? So I think there's kind of two main responses. One is just trying to figure out what is actually going on within the legal system. And so most domestic violence, either in the criminal capacity or in the civil capacity, is happening at the lowest level 
level court within each community. So in Massachusetts, those would be the district court. What we've seen in the district courts in Massachusetts is um, guidance from the Supreme Judicial Court, but each court implementing that guidance in a different way. That is alarming and very concerning for survivors and victims because many of those individuals going through the civil court process, for example, are doing it pro se. So one kind of main thing is just trying to get the information about what the process is to the people that want it. I would say there's a secondary thing that's happening um, of which I... Sorry, have can, been, I, yep. can I just ask a question? Is that process actually functioning right now? Is the adjudication process actually functioning during the sort of the shutdown or the partial reopening? Um, I would say it's very court dependent. So yes, technically it is functioning. District courts in Massachusetts are operating um, with telephonic hearings that cases are being called and heard. I would say the efficacy of that is is different. And as you already identified, Safer at Home is also consistent with what we know that if you can't make a phone call, if you're cohabitating with your abuser, if you need to call into a hearing and you don't have access to a phone, how are you supposed to do that? Right? So yes, the hearings are happening, how well they're happening and is up is 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 up to debate. I think they're the judges are trying to the judges and clerks are trying to operate as consistently as they can, but the the systems in place are very different depending on the court. The secondary thing that's happening is a technological response. And what we are seeing that is absolutely highlighted through this pandemic is how courts um, have not either been able to or taken advantage of technology in a way that meets victims' needs. And so what I'm talking about is how can we create technologies that increase access to justice in a way that is really helpful. So some of the things that are happening kind of broadly, and then I can speak to what the Domestic Violence Institute is trying to do, is a lot of courts and law schools affiliated with those courts are trying to do something that the private sector would think is very simple, which is um, getting those courts on those forms online, right? So getting fillable forms so that folks can apply for relief through a website or by emailing the clerk. That is that is innovation for the court system, which is very troubling. One of the things that I run is, is attempting to do with the Northeastern Law Lab is to create a virtual clinic. Individuals can go on to the DVI legal website, fill out a very brief intake, be directed directly to me and my my lawyering fellow. And then we're able to connect with those clients in whatever way they've identified as being safe. And then we were creating with a partner, a confidential app where we can share information and folks can send documentation as they help us build a case for them. But technology in this space is really lacking. And one of the reasons it's lacking is, is, is a safety reason, right? That we know that abusers can stalk and track and use technology to further harm their victims. And then the other part is just that technology in the legal services space is wildly underfunded. And so I joke, but I'm not joking that many of the, you know, working with courts is like working in 1989, right? That you have to do everything right. by paper. You have to fill everything out by pen. You have to... They be, do have faxes. They do have faxes, um, <laughs> which is not at all helpful for individuals. And frankly, we had to set up a whole, I mean, it's not a big deal for the law school, but we had to set up a whole fax system within the clinic just to be able to 
file some of the documentation we needed to. And so I believe that a conversation is happening and needs to continue to happen about how can we create easier access to technology that increases access to justice. I would just say that, um, and I and I believe that this has been a growing area for me. Historically, I've been resistant to technology or kind of not resistant to technology personally, but in this space, because I've, I've always thought that, gosh, like what if our clients don't have access to technology and then we're creating technology that either doesn't help them or discriminates against individuals that don't have the technology. But what we're seeing and what we've seen is that most clients do have a smartphone. And so whether it's what, and then how can we use that smartphone in a safer way to help them get access to help? Versus no. No, that's very, very good point. And, and obviously, I was being facetious um, since faxes are 1989 technology. Um, so, so uh, just uh, two questions to bring us home. One is, what other kinds of innovation, other than technological innovation, have you seen develop, or would you like to see develop? And then, you know, out of the things that kind of have emerged from this crisis, what you know, when we quote unquote go back to normal, what legal and, and, you know, sort of technological innovation would you like to, um, would you like to kind of keep? Um, And in the first, in the first element, I'm thinking about things that I've heard from elsewhere. Like, for example, in France, it's my understanding that they've partnered with pharmacists to create kind of like help seeking assistance situation where if people go up to pharmacists and say a code word, they can be provided resources to intimate partner violence assistance or other kinds of, you know, kind of workarounds if, if you're actually being sort of confined either psychologically or physically, what can we do to bring assistance to folks? Right. So I think there's two things. I mean, community education and educating individuals that one might not traditionally assume um, can be helpful in a safe intervention. So um, I've heard of pharmacists, um, hairdressers, though, hair salons, it's unclear if, if they're open but they are opening um, supermarkets, supermarket checkout individuals, um, people who work at banks, pharmacists. Um, so thinking about where individuals in a pandemic can go without setting off alarm bells or where do they go consistently even with a quarantine in place or a stay-at-home order. So yeah, community education is huge. I would say the other thing though is technology. It's like we've got to get these systems in a place where we can contact a clerk, we can email forms in, we can access those forms, we can understand what organizations are open or how organizations are open. We can safely communicate or I don't like to say safely, but we can communicate in a way that is safer, even under really challenging circumstances. Because what we can't do is just say, well, well, I don't know, like we're in a quarantine. What are we going to do? That's not good enough. And we also know it wasn't good enough before. I think the other thing, and I don't think broadly speaking, we've had this conversation enough is surrounding police accountability or a law enforcement accountability related to victims of violence. So, so much um, is happening right now. I'm 
so horrified, but also thrilled that we're moving in a direction where we can and need to hold more police officers and law enforcement agencies accountable for harm. I think one thing that I haven't heard a lot of, and I I would like to inject into this conversation, is that law enforcement has not served victims of violence well. And that's something that most people don't know. And so I cannot tell you how many clients I've had who have gone to the police and either been turned away or have wanted to participate in a prosecution of their abuser and DAs have declined to prosecute those cases or have had specific requests related to a prosecution because a full-on prosecution would put them in more danger and those requests haven't been listened to or vice versa, that the cases have been so egregious and defendants have been charged as misdemeanors as opposed to felonies. And so what I'm saying is the system isn't working for victims either. And I, I think that that needs to be part of whatever reform conversation we have to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think that is a, a, a critical point and, and actually tease up what I want to end on, which is what does the system look like on the other side of this? Like, what is the, you know, if you, we were at a moment where there's a lot of flux and theoretically we can build something better. What does that look like for you? What I'm is, hearing well, more technology. Yeah. So more technology. Yes. I think a holistic wraparound service is available for victims of violence. I think we need to talk about alternative forms of prosecution or restorative justice. What does that look like? That looks victim-centered. That looks like victims having a chance to have some say in what is going to bring them safety in a way that's specific to their case and their needs. It has to include safe, affordable housing and housing alternatives so that people aren't confined because of economic dependence. It has to also have a dynamic where we understand that folks who are impacted by violence, either as a perpetrator or as a victim, aren't necessarily going to separate. And so how do we give those individuals tools to either change their behavior or make themselves safer in a not totally safe situation? Definitely an important set of issues and something that we'll continue to keep an eye on. Margot, thank you so much for doing this briefing, but more broadly for doing this very important work during uh, global pandemic. Thank you so much for tuning in to COVID Law uh, and Policy Briefing. The shows are also archived on the Week in Health Law podcast. These briefings are produced by Faith Colley and Bethany Saxon. And you've been tuning in to, to hear Margot Lindauer, who is an Associate Clinical Professor and Director of the Domestic Violence Institute at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you so much. Thank you.